Please take your Bible today to the book of Luke, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take one off the resource table. You can even get up now and grab one. Uh, also, it's possible there's one either right underneath you or under the chair right in front of you. Of course, we all, most of us have phones that also has the Bible on it, typically, at least through something called Google. But we are back in the Gospel of Luke today for uh, the first time since mid-June, and we're studying a larger chunk of Luke than we have in previous sermons uh, for a variety of reasons. If you'd like to know all the details of those, you're welcome to ask me afterwards. But the message of Luke is that Jesus, the Messiah, fulfills God's plan by seeking and saving the lost. Jesus, the Messiah, fulfills God's plan by seeking and saving the lost. And Luke is answering two basic questions in essentially every passage in this book. Those questions are, who is Jesus and what does it look like to follow him? Our passage today is mostly answering that second question. In other words, what is a faithful disciple? That's the question that this passage is essentially answering. I didn't adjust my bookmark back to Luke, so bear with me for a second here. All right. So because of the length of this passage, I won't read the whole passage as I typically do at the beginning of a sermon. I won't read it all right now. We'll divide this passage into four units, and we'll read each unit just before explaining that section. So follow along now as I read Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. If you're new to the Bible, the large numbers on the page are called chapters, and the small numbers are called verses. They're simply just so that we can all be on the same page together. Luke chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began, Jesus began, to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on on the housetops." I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I knew a young man while I was in college, he was in college with me, who I heard on his wedding day, I was not at his wedding, but someone told me who was there, that on his wedding day he was very distracted by little details that probably weren't his responsibility or at least should not have been his responsibility on his wedding day to the point that while they were taking pictures of his whole family and his soon-to-be bride and supposedly him he's supposed to be in these pictures too he was down in the reception hall putting together some custom-made lanterns or something that 
probably should have been done weeks ago, but uh, instead he was doing them right before the wedding started. And so while instead he's, you know, while he's supposed to be getting his picture taken and celebrating this beginning of his new uh, married life, he's instead dealing with matters that probably uh, were not as high of a priority. And so it would have made sense for someone to walk down to that reception hall nearby where they were having the the ceremony and saying, look, you need to focus on what's important here, and it's getting up there. That's where we're going to have the ceremony in a few minutes. He needed to focus on what mattered in that moment. We as parents often think that getting our kids onto a travel team or into the best lessons and accepted into the right schools and getting them the largest scholarships will then automatically translate and uh, into success for our children and promise success and perhaps will promise the sterling reputation of the family. Perhaps you know some employees who regularly perform tasks on the clock that have nothing to do with their job or at least are so low-level priorities that they're completely missing the boat about what actually they're getting paid to do. All of these are problems, but what about the problem of disciples, of followers of Jesus who are living for approval and recognition from people, avoiding doing anything that could potentially put them in harm's way, failing to identify what will last versus what will immediately pass away. That's a real problem. We are often concerned about relationships and temporal belongings and evaluations of other people when none of those details in our lives really matter. And our passage confronts this problematic way of living, of focusing on low-level issues instead of the big picture, instead of doing what's truly important. And it does, show by, does so by showing us that Jesus exposes us to what is true And what is of lasting value? What is of true and lasting value? This is what Jesus does for his disciples. He tells us what is true, what is of lasting value. And so disciples think about life through his eyes. Disciples let Jesus be the one who defines what is important. This is what Jesus does for his disciples. He tells us what is truly important. And what does Jesus say? truly matters for you as someone who is zealous enough to follow him that you gather with other Christians to hear God's word today. Of course, perhaps there are people very likely who are here for other reasons. Perhaps you're just curious about what Christians believe, and we're thrilled that you're here as well, and we hope that you'll have your uh, needs met through our worship service as well. What does Jesus say is truly important for his disciples? In verses 1 through 12, he says what's important is that you are honest about who you are. Be honest about who you are. In the context in Luke 11, Jesus had just finished rebuking the Pharisees and lawyers who were just kind of a subset of the Pharisees in verses 37 through 54. That was the last passage I preached from Luke back in mid-June or so. If I had to take a guess, it was June 19th if you want to look it up, but that's a total guess. But what Jesus did there is kind of went after the the rebellion of the Pharisees. He was rebuking them for the way they were focused on externals, for majoring on the minors, for living for recognition, corrupting others, weighing people down with the details of God's law when they were not focused on the big parts of God's law, and being complicit in the death of God's servants. And as a result, verses 53 to 54 in the passage just before the one we started reading a few minutes ago, as he went away from this meeting with these Pharisees, 
the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So these Pharisees hate Jesus enough to now be doing everything they can to find some reason to kill him, basically. That's the context where we pick this up, and Jesus goes right after them again here, kind of as a concluding statement to that rampage against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He says, I just want to warn you, beware of the leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees. People might kind of scratch their heads and go, what are you talking about? We all know what yeast is, but what is the leaven of the Pharisees? And Jesus explicitly tells you it is hypocrisy. It's making, you, it's, it's making people think that you are something that you are not. It's attempting to make people believe something about you that is not true. It talks about putting on a mask. That's what a hypocrite is. It is putting on a mask. It's implying that what people think about you is what really matters. Let me put the emphasis there. It's implying that what people think about you is what really matters instead of knowing that what God thinks about you is what truly matters. And this is why we need one another. Because we are tempted to put on a mask, to act like we are something that we're not, to hide the worst parts of people and put the best foot forward so that people assume the best about us when really we we know far better. This is why we need one another, because I am a far healthier Christian when people know me, when you know me, when we know each other and we're in the details of each other's lives. This is what happens in the context of a church. You can read the Bible on your own, and I encourage you to do that. You can pray on your own, and I encourage you to do that. You can sing songs, either alone or in concert with YouTube, and I encourage you to do both of those, but you can't have relationships with other Christians apart from life in a church, at least healthy relationships uh, with Christians apart from a local church. And so it's good for us as often as possible to let Christians into our lives, Let them see who we really are so they can confront us for who we really are. So they can see the blind spots that we simply cannot see by definition of them being blind spots. It's important for us, at least weekly, if not far more often, to let Christians into our lives. Rather than filling our times with what is truly optional, letting our schedules be filled with meetings with other Christians, meals with other Christians, going for walks with other church members. You need other Christians in your life so that you can be truly known. Otherwise, hypocrisy begins to grow and fester the way that yeast grows in bread. And if it takes root, hypocrisy will destroy you. Take heed, Jesus said. Be on guard against this leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And he warns of a day when what is true about you will be known to all, When judgment day comes, you can't hide yourself anymore. Your mask is shattered at that point. And so Jesus says, come out into the light now. Let people know where you're weak. Let people know where you need prayer, where you need accountability, where you need counseling, and let Christians into your life. So be honest about who you are by avoiding hypocrisy. Be honest about who you are by fearing God and not man. This is simply acknowledging that I am human, not divine, that what happens to me now is far less important. What happens to you now is far less important than what happens to you later. 
Jesus is saying in an ultimate sense here in verses 4 through 7 that people can't hurt you. They can't kill you. They can't annihilate you. Yes, they can kill your body, but they cannot kill your soul. They cannot annihilate your soul. Only one person can send you to hell, and that is God. This is not a passage talking about Satan. Jesus says to, be a, be, be, to have fear of God, not fear of Satan, not fear of anyone else. Fear the one who can cast you into hell, and that is God the Father himself. This passage exposes us, though, not just to our need to fear God, but to the reality that we are deeply loved by God. And we'll talk more about this later in our passage as well. But this passage should relieve some of our deepest fears and anxieties. Verse 6 indicates that sparrows were so inexpensive that you could buy five for two pennies. What's likely happening here, according to one commentary I read, and so pennies is, you know, kind of a translation for our sake, just the two smallest coins. You can get five sparrows for the two smallest coins, the two least valuable pieces of money. What's probably happening here is you can buy two sparrows for one penny. Obviously, you can buy four sparrows for two pennies, and then the person, the merchant who's selling you those sparrows considers sparrows to be so worthless that he'll just toss a fifth one in for free. It's buy four, get the fifth free special. I assume these are for food. I don't really know. But that being said, sparrows were basically worthless. This is why you could get five for two pennies. And this passage tells us that you are far more valuable than many sparrows, far more than the five you get for two pennies. The, the merchant cared so little about the sparrows, he's willing to give you an extra one. But you know who does care for you? As opposed to that merchant and the sparrows, God cares for you. And if he cares about little birds, which we occasionally see lying on the ground, maybe falling out of their nest or something like that, hardly give it a second thought when we see those, how much must he care for you? If he knows the details of where that sparrow was born, where that sparrow has flown to, what that sparrow has eaten, where that sparrow died, how much more must he know about you? And it even says he knows more about you than you know about yourself. At least I've never counted the hairs on my head, as easy as it would be to do. Uh, Likely you haven't either, but God has. In other words, God knows things about you that even the best doctor on the planet could never tell you about yourself, even after running every possible diagnostic test available. And this level of detail is meant to assure you of God's care for you, God's compassion for you, God's tenderness toward you. And like I said, there's another section of this passage. We'll talk about this more later. But for our non-Christian friends, this passage reminds us that there is a fate worse than death. It's eternal judgment for our rebellion against God. When you read the Bible, we tend to put ourselves in the good guy category. Like we're the ones who fight against the evil one. Typically, we're the bad guys in the story. We're the ones who hung Jesus on the cross, as we just sang, and how deep the Father's love for us. You can hear your own voice crying out among those who were scoffing and joking about Jesus hanging there. So we are these rebels that the Bible describes, which means we deserve to be cast into hell, which means that the only way to avoid that fate is to repent of that rebellion and believe that Jesus' sacrifice is your only way to be forgiven. 
So tell the truth about who you are. Be honest about who you are. You do that by avoiding hypocrisy, by fearing God and not man. And third, by relying on the Holy Spirit's help in verses 8 through 12. Verse 9 says that, it's, that, that uh, those who deny God will be denied by God, will, will be rejected from God's eternal kingdom. And it's possible to deny Jesus by how you live, not just by what you say. I think sometimes we think, well, as long as I say the right words about Jesus, it doesn't really matter how I live. And this passage tells another story. We can deny who Jesus is or, by, or, who, or what Jesus did and what he does by how we live, by how we justify sin, by how we uh, give ourselves a free pass, by how we celebrate what the world celebrates. The world says that the greatest sin that you could possibly commit today is the sin of intolerance. Yet they are relatively intolerant of Christians, if I can kindly say that, Christian ethics, Christian beliefs. We can deny Christ's person and work in many ways. And I would just ask you, do people know who Jesus is by the way that you have lived your life recently? By the life, by the arc of your life, can people say, oh, that's who Jesus is. That's what Christians do because they love Jesus, because they follow God's word. Or would they, you send a confusing mixed message? This passage contains, uh, particularly in verse 10, one of the more troubling statements for many Christians, and it's this one that the person who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That sounds really significant, and for many Christians who perhaps struggle with assurance of forgiveness, assurance of salvation, for instance, this can sound like a really dark possibility. What if I have been the one who, have, who has committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and I don't even know it, and I'm going to be condemned to hell, I'm not going to be forgiven because I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Well, here's what I've heard many people say, and I truly wholeheartedly believe from this passage and the, the parallel passages in the New Testament, if you're concerned about committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit, okay? That's the assurance you can have. Essentially, what this is doing is referring back to Luke chapter 11, verse 15, where people were attributing the work of Jesus to the work of Satan and saying that you're clearly casting out demons by the power of Satan. There's no way there's, you could do that in any other way. And Jesus essentially says, no, that is blasphemy. It is blasphemy to attribute to Satan something that only God can do. Someone who has blasphemed the Holy Spirit truly is dead spiritually. And what I would argue probably is that, not probably, what I would argue is that you probably will not know that you have committed the Holy Spirit until committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Someone would not know that until they came to the end of their life, but they would go through their life completely unconcerned about that reality because they completely disavow what the Bible says. And so again, if this is a concern to you, I just want to assure you that that is not the case for you, all right? However, what you could conclude from this is, well, clearly the Holy Spirit is more important than Jesus because it says you can blaspheme Jesus just fine, Jesus being the Son of Man. That's a bad conclusion to draw, <laughs> is what I would respond to with that statement. That would be an inappropriate uh, statement to, re- to, uh, to believe. It is wrong to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but I think what Jesus is describing when he says uh, blaspheming the Son of Man, it would be like drawing a wrong conclusion about Jesus. Who in the Bible did that? Like all the disciples? 
and Paul himself, yes, they drew wrong conclusions temporarily about who Jesus was, and then, by the work of the Holy Spirit, had those wrong beliefs confronted and exposed and changed. And so, we probably all draw wrong conclusions about who Jesus is. But when you attribute the work of God to the evil one, that is when you have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But again, if you've done that, you simply don't care about that. You're completely undesiring of pleasing God in the first place. Also in this passage is this statement that the Holy Spirit will teach you in verse 12. When you are being persecuted, you can just rely on the Holy Spirit to give you the truth and to say. And I do believe that that's the case, but I do think that we are living in a different time than when Jesus said this. Had the Holy Spirit, this is a, you know, kind of a true or false question, True or false, the Holy Spirit had already come on God's people at the time Jesus said this. False, right? That's in Acts 2, so you need to finish the book of Luke and then move into Acts before the Holy Spirit comes. Now that the Holy Spirit has come, yes, he will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus' disciples, when they heard this, were probably like, how is the Holy Spirit going to teach us this? The Holy Spirit isn't here with us. Well, that happened at the work of Pentecost, and now all those who have put their faith in Christ, have the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart. And so, yes, the Holy Spirit teaches you what you need to say. I think the main way that the Holy Spirit does this is by reminding us of Scripture. When you are being persecuted for your faith, and for us American Christians, this does not happen in a very significant way most of the time. I'm not denying that this happens in certain cases in America, particularly if you uh, have been saved out of perhaps a different religious background in your your uh, unbelieving family is still confessing faith in some other God. Perhaps you do face true persecution. What I'm simply saying, though, is <clears throat> that uh, the Holy Spirit does this for us, typically speaking, by reminding us of Scripture. In order for the Holy Spirit to remind us of Scripture, though, we first have to know Scripture. And so this is where I just want to implore you once again to dive deeply into your Bible. And just soak in the truth of God's word, marinate in it, so that when you are like, so that when you have a hard day, you are like a sponge, and what comes out of you is the word of God, is a godly response because you have been so infused with the truth of God's word. This includes just reading the Bible over and over again, but it certainly includes as well, at least I think by implication, memorizing the Bible, and that's where I encourage you again to be here next week and and hear from the the blessing and wisdom of Andy Davis, who has. Memorize a significant portion of the Bible. So here in verses 1 through 12, this passage urges us to be honest about who you are. What Jesus does is tells us what's important. What's important is to be honest about who you are. This next section, what's important is to be content in the Lord's care and provision. This is verses 13 through 34. Follow along as I read this next passage. It may seem like we should stop after verse 21, but I'm convinced they should be together. I'll tell you why as we go along. Follow along, verses 13 through 34. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, 
what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you then are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys." For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Christian, be content in the Lord's care and provision. The first part of this passage, verses 13 through 21, says that being rich in this life gives you nothing. Surely you jest, you might think. No, it gives you nothing. People were looking at Jesus here in verse 13 as if he were an average rabbi who would help people settle disputes in their in their family life. So here you have this brother who's concerned that his, that his brother is not giving him his fair share of the inheritance after perhaps his father had died. And Jesus said, no, I'm not your average rabbi. I'm not here to settle these disputes. This is not part of my purpose. This is not my mission. In verse 15, when Jesus says that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, he's saying that life is not about how much you own. Have you thought about that recently? Your life is not consisting of the things that you own. But how much differently we live. We assume our lives are better if we have a car designed in this decade or a house that was built in this century or a phone that was built this year. We covet a body with no embarrassing attributes, a better retirement portfolio, bigger trophies or at least more trophies and a more impressive resume. These are the things that we covet after, that we want, that we live for. And this passage says, none of that gets you to God. You can have every one of those blessings and you'll still lose them all when you die. You're rich in the world's eyes when you have those gifts. That's what they are, is gifts. But you're impoverished before God if that's all you have. So, Jesus says, be on guard against covetousness. Put your guard up against just saying, I just want more. I just need more. If I have that, I'll be happy. If I get that raise, I'll be happy. If I get that promotion, I'll be happy. Be on guard against, this, against covetousness because being rich in this life gets you nothing. 
obviously having to skip over quite a few details, but in verses 22 through 34, being anxious in this life gets you nowhere. So being rich in this life gives you nothing. Being anxious in this life gets you nowhere. We're people who worry about everything from what's in the water, and in some cases in our country right now, like Jackson, Mississippi, it's a good question to ask, what's in my water? But we're also, uh, and, and certainly in other parts of the world, it's a legitimate question to ask all the time. But we're also worried about whether our pants will snap on if we eat this granola bar, still, whether they're still fit. We're worried about whether our t- fantasy football tight end is actually going to start today. And if you're worried about that, worry up after 12 o'clock. Jesus says, though, that life is more than what you eat and what you put on. You can't make yourself tolerable, as desirable as that may be for some of us. Clayton, you can't make your life longer, as desirable as that might be for some of us. I assume you would want to be tolerable if you had... I'm totally wrong, probably, on that guess. I'm sorry. He's probably totally content with being a foot shorter than me. You can't make yourself live longer, though, even if you want to try. You can't, um, as much as you might want to take a tour of every part of the world, if I had my long life, this is what I'm going to do. No. Jesus is just saying, you can't make your life longer. You can't make yourself taller. And yet you're worried about all these little things. It's kind of a greater to lesser. Like, why are you worried about these things if you can't do these things? He describes, Jesus describes here ravens in verse 24. Beautiful picture. He already talked about the sparrows earlier. Here he's talking about ravens. Ravens don't go through their lives with a sense of fear that today they're not going to find the next mouse to eat or the next berry bush or the next pile of maggots. I googled what ravens eat. They're not worried about any of those things. They know they're going to find it when they're hungry. They know how to find it when they're hungry. 250 years ago in London, hymn writer William Cooper observed from this passage that the unknown future can bring with it nothing, but he will bear us through. Who gives the lilies clothing will clothe his people too. Beneath the spreading heavens, no creature, excuse me, beneath the spreading heavens, no creature but is fed, and he who feeds the ravens will give his children bread. You don't have anything to worry about. You're the child of God. So what's worrying you today? What's paralyzing you? What's keeping you awake at night? What's weighing on you the second you wake up? This passage urges you, Jesus urges you, to be content in the Lord's care and provision. And as a result, he says, be more willing to give. Instead of building a bigger barn to put all your stuff in, sell your belongings and give the proceeds to other people who can use it. Be generous rather than stingy. God's good pleasure is to give you the kingdom. And if you want to go deeper in this conversation about contentment, I urge you to read one of two books or both. And the first is The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment from the 1600s, Jeremiah Burrow. And then if you want the more updated version for my third plug for Andy Davis today, The Power of Christian Contentment by the guy who's speaking here next Sunday, Finding Deeper, Richer, Christ-Centered Joy. Both are excellent and I commend them to you. Verse 34, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, means that what you love reflects the condition of your heart before God. What you treasure, what you protect, says more about you than you could even begin to describe about yourself to others. Don't be like the rich fool who had so much he had to build a bigger barn just so he had a place to put it all so that then he could take it easy for the rest of his life. Remember that even if you have no barn at all, God knows all about the sparrows that fill the rafters of the barns. 
and He loves you far more than many sparrows. Third, be ready for Christ's return. This is the message of verses 35 through 48. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third, whether he comes in the middle of the night or first thing in the morning and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that, master, if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating." But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Be ready for Christ's return. That's the message of verses 35 to 48. Your time is unknown. You never know when Jesus is coming back. That's the simple gist of verses 35 to 40. And Jesus mixes two kind of little parables or little stories together in this passage. So, in other words, the master in verse 39 is not the same master described in verse 36. He's using two different stories about masters. One who's coming home and so you keep your lamps lit so when he gets home it's welcoming to him. The other is just this story of a guy who's a homeowner. Maybe you can put that word in for you uh, in your passage there. If there's a homeowner who thinks that someone's going to break into his house, he's not going to leave his house. And I asked my son Grant this morning, can you think of a movie where someone was in a house and knew that a thief was coming so he didn't leave? And he goes, Home Alone. And absolutely, that's the correct answer. You should be thinking of the movie Home Alone right now. The reason Kevin McAllister didn't go out on the town on Christmas Eve night was because he knew the bad guys were coming to his house. So he didn't leave. If you knew Jesus was coming back today, what would you be doing? That's the question that you should be asking when you read this passage. Because your time is unknown. The best quarterbacks know when the defense is blitzing and therefore where the open receiver is going to be. So he's going to go there. He's prepared. He's ready. He's alert. And so we too need to be ready and alert and prepared for Jesus' return. While I was in seminary, I occasionally preached at a church in Georgia about an hour away from uh, where I was in seminary. And I asked one of the church members at that church one time, so what do you like to do with your free time? He was an older gentleman. And he said, I just like looking for signs of the, old, of the end times. And I was like, that's a use of your time. That, that's fine. I just think, based on, say, for instance, Second Timothy, that we're already living in the end times, that a better use of your time, instead of looking for signs of the end times, is living in light of the end times. Living for Jesus now. And that's what verses 41 through 48 gets to when he says to use your opportunities 
responsibly. And I just really like how Jesus, when he's asked a specific question in verse 41, are you telling this parable for us or for everybody? And he's kind of like, neither. Okay, that was a very interesting answer. Jesus does this all the time. He asks a question to answer a question. So here's the question. Is this for us as disciples or for everybody who's here listening? Because we read in verse 1 there were thousands of people hearing what Jesus was saying, but he was directing it to his disciples. So who's this for? And his, his basic answer is this is for the faithful person, the wise person. This is who I'm talking to, the person who's going to take his opportunities and use them responsibly. And so I just want to ask you, how do you use the gifts that God has given you? The gift might be your house. It might be your car. It might be your, your savings account. It might be a spiritual gift that we're talking about, so you know how to uh, minister to people in particular ways or especially warm and affectionate toward people who are suffering. Are you using your gifts in the right way? Are you being responsible with them? Verse 48 takes a bit of a surprising turn to me or maybe to our minds. I tend to think, to the person who receives more, he's going to be required more. And the opposite of that is the person who receives less, he's going to be required of less. But Jesus just says the exact same thing two different ways. It's called synonymous parallelism. We see it all the time in the Psalms and in Isaiah, throughout the minor prophets. Synonymous parallelism means the author says the same thing two different ways. So verse 48, the one uh, who did not know and did what deserved a beating, who will receive a light beating. Here's the synonymous parallelism. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. Well, what's the opposite? No, it's not the opposite. It's the same thing. From him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So Jesus emphasizes how much responsibility we as his people have been given to contribute to the mission of the church. Today in our members' meeting, we're voting... Uh, to remove seven church members who have moved away. I hate to tell you, but we have about seven more who we need to vote on probably in November uh, who have have already moved away but have not yet transferred their membership elsewhere. That means that of just those seven today, there are seven sets of spiritual gifts that need to be replaced. There are seven pairs of shoes that are not here that you need to help fill. And, you know, what's shocking is when you look at the list of people who moved away, They were seven of our most active members. And they're gone. Praise God, they have already transferred their membership to other churches. And from the reports I'm hearing, they're serving in very effective ways in those churches, just like we expected, because all seven of them left on wonderful terms. They loved our church, and God sent them elsewhere. And His kingdom is expanding. Praise God for all of this. It hurts us. But what I'm saying is there's opportunity for you. There's responsibility for you. To whom much is given, much is required. So use your gifts and your opportunities to serve the Lord because we have tons of opportunity and tons of responsibility. Let me just recount the first three points here. Be honest about who you are. Be content in the Lord's care and provision. Be ready for Christ's return. Fourth, finally, Be aware of the urgency of Christ's mission. Verses 49 to 59. Be aware of the urgency of Christ's mission. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, which is his crucifixion. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. 
Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. It's going to be hot. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny." Be aware of the urgency of Christ's mission. Why is it urgent? Because judgment is coming, verses 49 to 53. He came to cast fire on the earth. John the Baptist talked about this, about Jesus' ministry, back in Luke chapter 3. You can look at it multiple times there in Luke 3. Jesus has come to be baptized himself with the judgment of God, to be crucified. And he asks this question, we think the answer is, of course Jesus came to bring, bring peace on earth. I mean, we sing that at Christmas time. But Jesus' answer is, no, I did not come to bring peace. What he's saying is, the reality of Jesus' presence forces people to decide who they're going to follow. Are they going to follow Jesus or are they going to follow the world? Yes, for all those who follow Jesus, there will be peace on earth and mercy mild, God with heaven reconciled, as we sing at Christmas time and other times. We're not in that time yet. People are still having to choose whether they will kiss the Son. And I'm going to ask you from Psalm 2, have you kissed the Son? Have you repented of your sin and put your hope in Christ alone? That is how you side with Christ as opposed to being against Him. And so yes, Christ does put peace in our hearts when we are His children. We often go through suffering with a sense of peace that is beyond all understanding. But right now we're living in a world that's not full of peace because we're living in a world of people who have to decide whether they will choose to follow Christ. Are you willing to have division in your family, at your workplace, in your neighborhood for the sake of following Jesus? Judgment Day is coming, but if it's far off, it doesn't really motivate us, right? It's kind of like, I'll worry about that another time. So Jesus takes us a step further, and in verses 54 to 59, he says that judgment day is near. People were good at figuring out meteorology. When it's cloudy, it's probably going to rain. When the wind comes from the south, it's probably going to get hot. They were right on both of those things, and Jesus says, I can't believe you would be aware of these visible realities, but you'd be unaware of the spiritual reality of what's happening right now. The Messiah is here. Choose to bow to him. If Jesus was there... The fact that Jesus was present means that judgment day is closer than ever before. And if it's near, that means you need to be reconciled while there's time. He talks here about being reconciled to your accuser. Perhaps this goes back to the guy earlier in the passage who said, hey, help me and my brother get on the same page here about our father's inheritance. Here, So he, maybe he's referring back to that guy. But you also need to be reconciled, yes, to each other, but also to God. Be reconciled to others, that means through humility and confession and asking for forgiveness, you get right with others. Be reconciled to God, that means you do that through faith and repentance. Often I conclude a sermon through a story and instead I'm just going to, for sake of time, just kind of boil this right down. 
if we need to focus on what's most important, again, the question is, what does Jesus do for his disciples? He shows us what matters. He shows us what lasts. And let me tell you three places where we tend to give a lot of time that don't matter. Only one of them hits me right in the face, but it really hits me right in the face. But the other two I feel really good talking about because I don't worry about them too much. First is social media. I don't really worry about it too much. I can tell you why I don't, because when I was on social media, I never saw anything important. I can't remember anything that somebody posted on Facebook seven years ago. Maybe it was important at the moment. It doesn't matter now. So less time on social media. I would encourage you toward that. Less time on politics. I would encourage you toward that. Here's the news. Somebody's going to get elected. There you go. They're going to make decisions. You're going to like some of them and not like most of the others. There you go. And here's the third way we can spend less time and more time on what's important, and that's on sports. Yes, this tie is orange and blue for a reason. So there's that. But let's spend more time, by the grace of God, on things that matter. And that's where I have to land this, is that this is all a work of God. Because without God's grace, without the hope of the gospel, we are going to spend more time focused on our reputation, putting up that mask of hypocrisy so that people think really highly of us instead of actually being real with what God knows about us. We are going to spend a lot of time being concerned with something that's temporal rather than with Christ's return. We're going to spend a lot of time worrying instead of resting in God's care and provision. And we're going to spend a lot of time being unaware of the urgency of Christ's mission. And so I would urge us, based on the fact that Jesus exposes what is of true and lasting value, to let him be the one who defines what is important in your life. Let's close in prayer, friends. Lord, we thank you for Christ, for his faithful teaching, for this word that you have providentially passed down to us for us to hold in our hands. But we pray now that it would work its way into the webbing of our hearts as well that truly we would be people transformed, that you would renew our minds through this passage, through the hope it gives us, the hope of eternal life, but also through the conviction that it brings us by the work of your Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.